You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Swift fishbait hits inboxes. North Korean hackers show fresh sophistication and new ambitions. Fancy Bear seems to be snuffling east. There are Monero miners in Word, and why crypto jacking for Bitcoin is harder than it is for other currencies. The cold root rat hides in plain sight. The U.S. Departments of Justice and Homeland Security undertake new approaches to election security. And Facebook has a new verification mode. Send in a postcard. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, February 21st, 2018. If you want to spot the coming trends in fishbait, just follow the news. Over the weekend, news of a series of bogus SWIFT fund transfers affecting an Indian bank hit the wires. Since then, the hoods have jumped on their main chance, and so fraudulent transfers executed over the SWIFT network have prompted a new category of spam. From their perch at the foot of Garrett Mountain, researchers at Komodo Threat Research Labs report that criminals are using spam to distribute an attachment whose payload is the Adwind Trojan. The email's subject and text declare it to be a notice that there's been a swift transfer to the recipient's account, and then refers the victim to the attachment for details. This version of Adwind, once it's in a system, does a variety of things. Registry modification, antivirus and other security software tool installation checks, and if possible, AV software kills, and then connection with the Tor network. It also seeks to disable the Windows Restore option, and it will, if possible, turn off user account control, which, when enabled, would prevent software from being installed without the user's knowledge. Komodo thinks the campaign is reconnaissance and preparation for further, more damaging attacks. Recipients have this going for them, however. While the choice of subject may be clever, the approach is not. The spam is a throwback to the days of non-standard English grammar and eccentric idiomatic control. Be alert and use all your literary critical skills when you read your email. Slowly but surely, researchers are making headway with quantum computers. The promise is one of a whole new class of computational capabilities, but with those capabilities comes a threat to the encryption we rely on today. Scott Totsky is CEO at Isara Corporation, a company specializing in creating what they describe as quantum-safe cryptography, and he brings us up to speed. We're very much in kind of the early days, even though we've been doing research for a couple of decades in, into quantum computing, but we're, we're starting to see 
real early applications and, and progress. I mean, if you look at, at CES a couple of weeks ago, we had Intel announcing their 49-qubit chip. So we're, we're starting to see some milestones from major technology vendors that are working on building quantum computers, even even small ones, that'll solve problems that we can't solve on, on the world's largest supercomputers today. And everybody gets really excited about that because we can start to see a future where you can see quantum information science impacting all kinds of, of innovation cycles around the world in different areas. We can look at uh, pharmaceutical research where we can start to do drug design much more efficiently. Uh, we can look at you know quantum chemistry where we can, we can take the one to 3% of the world's energy that we use to produce fertilizer so we can feed the planet and we can reduce that because we can more efficiently uh, you know, produce fertilizer in the future or we can build superconducting uh, materials that will let us be more efficient at uh, you know, transporting power over the electricity grid where we lose 10 to 12% of the uh, electricity today. Um, you know, we can make that a much more efficient transaction in the future so we, we have less loss of electrical power as we send it over the grid. So all of those kind of speak to a new era of computing where we'll be able to solve problems that are far beyond the grasp of what we can do today. And I think that's where people get really excited because they see, you know, the innovation cycle that happened, you know, starting in the seventies in Silicon Valley and all of that technology and, and kind of wealth management, wealth creation and, and uh, you know, intellectual property and, and prosperity that happened because of those investments and that focus in, in building a technology industry. Now we're, we're on to the next phase of, what's next in the computing industry and it's quantum computing and and again we're just on the cusp of being able to move into new areas of, of research and design that people get really excited about and of course uh, the concern is that quantum computing will be a threat to our traditional encryption algorithms yeah that's correct so uh, you know they solve quantum computers solve certain classes of of hard problems really efficiently and I, I talked about a few of them but one of the classes of hard problems is is the the math that is the underlying component that protects us on the internet today and and when you look at you know the technology industry in general you know we've been really effective and, and efficient at building encryption into everything that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So when you think about it, it's probably the biggest success story of the technology industry over the last 30 or 40 years. We've taken something that is really complicated and difficult in, in the use of strong encryption, and we've made it kind of ubiquitous and transparent. And, and even if you're a non-technical user, you're going to use this type of technology a thousand times a day and not even know about it. So as we think about quantum computing becoming a threat to this, we also look at how we've embedded strong encryption into just about everything we use on a day-to-day -day basis. And all of that needs to be updated to something that is going to be resistant to an attack from a quantum computer or you know, the integrity of everything from you know, the data that we use to to manage kind of the the environment within an office where we've got all kinds of sensors for managing temperature and controlling the environment there to you know signing on and checking your bank balance. All of that's going to be Kind of challenged by quantum computers, and we need to focus on how we shift the security model to something that's going to be more resilient and safe to an attack from a quantum computer. I'm intrigued by this notion that um, some people may be harvesting encrypted data and you're storing it, looking toward the future for when we pass this quantum threshold, that uh, they might be able to uh, break that data they can get their hands on today. Yeah, I mean, that, and that, that's very much a you know a driving theme that we hear when we talk to government customers is there, you know, at, at every level, it depends who your adversary is, but when you're thinking about this at a state level, there's a lot of concern that 
whoever your adversary is, if you're, you know, U.S. or you're a five-eye country, you know, you're very concerned that, say, Russia or China or North Korea is harvesting all this data and storing it in a data center someplace. And then when they do have a quantum computer, they'll be able to go back and undo all of the kind of secrecy and encryption that we're using to protect sensitive communications today. So if you're a government agency, you know, you might have a a 20-year, 25-year secrecy obligation on, on electronic communications that you are sending out on a day-to-day basis. And and when we look at the timeline for when we see quantum computers being a threat, you know, this could be as early as 2026. And, and so today you can't meet that 20-year, 25-year secrecy obligation with state-of-the-art encryption technology that we use today to protect all of our transactions. So in some sense, you're already creating an exposure where the information that you need to protect is already exposed to an adversary, but it's, you know, it's maybe sometime in the next seven or eight years before that becomes actionable on their part. But every day you continue to leak more information that, you know, can't be protected in accordance with, with whatever your secrecy obligations are. That's Scott Totsky from ICERA. The Olympics are in their final week, and the DPRK's Reaper operators are in contention for hacking gold. They weren't involved, it seems, in the disruption that hit the game's opening ceremonies. The usual suspect in that escapade remains Russia, but they've shown a considerable increase in capability. FireEye researchers report, with high confidence, that North Korean government cyber operators are showing new sophistication and ambition. Studies of the threat group variously known as Reaper, APT-37, Group 123, that's Cisco's TALUS unit's name for them, and Scarcroft, as Kaspersky called it, suggest that it's aggressively targeting international corporations. According to FireEye, most of Reaper's attacks are initiated with sophisticated social engineering. CrowdStrike, which tracks the group as Labyrinth Colima, says they've shown the ability to bridge air gaps by unspecified means. Reaper is known for pursuing government, defense industry, and media targets, but it's recently added the chemical, electronic, aerospace, healthcare, automotive, and manufacturing verticals to its target list. Taking a look at the bears, Kaspersky Lab says that Sophocy, the threat group linked with Russian military intelligence, also known as APT-28, Pondstorm, Sednit, Strontium, and of course our favorite Fancy Bear, has begun to shift its focus eastward from NATO targets. It's now taking a closer interest in Ukrainian and Central Asian networks. Researchers at Israeli cybersecurity firm Votairo warn that they've determined it's possible to embed Monero mining script in Microsoft Word documents. Why, one might ask, has Monero grown in popularity among cryptojackers? After all, Bitcoin is still the most valuable cryptocurrency, even though it's fallen off from its December highs. And Bitcoin's transaction fees, which had become high enough to put criminals off the currency, have fallen from $34 to less than a buck. The answer seems to be, according to what researchers at security firms Imperva and Checkpoint told ZDNet, that mining Bitcoin requires a custom application-specific integrated circuit, an ASIC. No ASIC, no mining. But that's not an obstacle in the case of Monero and some other cryptocurrencies. Cybersecurity firm Digita Security is warning about a remote-access trojan, a rat, called Coldroot. Coldroot is a cross-platform rat that installs a keylogger and is used mostly to steal banking credentials. What's curious about Coldroot is that it's been around for about a year and has been traded in dark web markets. 
Its code has been on GitHub for roughly a year, too. Yet Coldroot still escapes detection by signature-based antivirus tools, indicating how easy it can be to hide in plain sight. And finally, as midterm elections approach in the United States, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security is increasing its cybersecurity aid to state election officials as they prepare for midterm voting. The assistance includes classified threat briefings. The Department of Justice has also organized an anti-election hacking task force. And the private sector is thinking about what it might do to help. Facebook has introduced a new low-tech method of verifying that people who purchase political ads are who they say they are, and not, say, employees of, oh, we don't know, the Internet Research Agency or the Vopercoin impresarios operating from the Arbot. They'll verify their bona fides by returning a physical postcard. As Facebook says, that won't solve everything, but they think it's a simple step in the right direction. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. You know, Justin, uh, I've been hearing lately about data-centric security, and I was hoping you could shed some light on how exactly uh, people go about uh, implementing this and how the architecture differs from what we've uh, done traditionally. Data-centric security is really about identifying your high-value assets, maybe your data, maybe your business processes, and building up your defenses from the inside out. For the last decade, the focus has really been on how high can you build your walls? How high can you build your perimeter to create resistance or friction for adversaries so that if you're able to repel them, they won't get into your organization and steal your data? Hmm. But what we're finding is it's getting easier, or at least it is easy, for adversaries to bypass the perimeter. And it's happening over and over. In fact, I've even told a lot of my clients 
build your cyber defense program in such a way that you are surrendering the perimeter. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying go out and divest all of your perimeter controls. But what we're seeing is a race with the industry. How high can you build your wall? And it's a race condition. But what's happening every time is the adversary is leaping over the wall. And then you're in this softer center. You're in your intranet or you're inside of your organization. And it's very easy for them to move laterally and steal data. Mm. So data-centric security is, is first identifying what your high value assets are. And and of course, if you can't identify them, how can you protect them? Right. Secondly, building from the inside out. So having all of the necessary encryption, having all of the necessary uh, privilege access monitoring, and even going as far as to create an enclave. So a hardened center within your organization with your crown jewels and increasing the focus and the scrutiny on those assets. And then being able to monitor that effectively in a continuous uh, response model. Data-centric security is not that different from the approaches that many organizations are taking today. It's just really focusing on what is important to your organization and being able to secure from the inside out. So having a concentric circles of walls and moats and protections uh, all, all the way around with the most valuable stuff in the middle. Yes, but I wouldn't say that more walls is the answer, per se, Uh, but I would say, let me give you an example. Uh, Let's say data-centric security really comes into focus when we consider some of the latest vulnerabilities that organizations have been hit with. Let's consider the struts vulnerability with Apache. Mm -hmm. Apache was hit, and, and an adversary, perhaps is scanning your perimeter, finds an Apache server that's vulnerable, exploits that and then moves through the system in order to um, achieve their objective by um, grabbing the data and leaving. And what is different in a data-centric security approach is a few things. Number one is being able to know where your high-value assets are, just like I said before. So in this case, you would already know that you have some sensitive data on your perimeter. The next would be uh, being able to have a threat intelligence team that's examining the wire or the press or Twitter up to date so that when this vulnerability is exposed or hits the wire within the first 30 minutes, an hour or two, your team knows, hey, this is now a vulnerability. And because you have a good vulnerability and patch management system that's reactive, now you know exactly, well, there's 13 uh, Apache websites in the perimeter. And by the way, we also have privileged access monitoring and we have a security operations team that is Uh, essentially orchestrating the mitigation of this risk, either through installing new web app firewall uh, rules, maybe it's even taking the Apache system down. So by being able to take more of a data-centric approach, that leads to a better response capability. Good advice as always. Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. 
That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.